Hey everyone, John Heilman here and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast for the recount about politics and culture on the edge of Armageddon with big ups to my pal Riza, the presiding genius behind the sound of Wu-Tang Clan and the producer of our dope theme music. As we head into the Thanksgiving holiday, we here at Hell and High Water want to wish everyone a peaceful and restful break in which you can put all your troubles and cares temporarily behind you and simply express and indulge your gratitude for the multitude of blessings that we are hopeful that each and every one of you has enjoyed in 2021. Over here, however, on the end times apocalypse's nigh beat at Hell and High Water, we don't have that luxury. So as usual, we will be fretting and worrying and wringing our hands and scratching our heads over how things got so totally fucked up in America, even without Donald Trump in the White House or on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or any other quasi-respectable social media platform. And as we consume epic quantities of turkey, both the store-bought birds that we slather with duck fat before we roast and then serve with cranberry sauce, and the wild turkey that we pour over ice and pour down our throats with utter abandon, we'll be especially preoccupied with the misinformation, disinformation, and malinformation that are flooding our media ecosystem online and off, turning America into an increasingly divided, disputatious, and demented place, utterly subsumed in fake news, conspiracy theories, untethered assertions, unhinged rantings, and unimaginable paranoias, along with a whole bunch of just plain lies about almost everything under the sun. Therefore, for our show today, we are pleased, in a way, to have a guest whose knowledge about the depth of this problem and whose expertise about its implications for our society, and in particular, the coming elections, and whose ideas about what to do about it are about a hundred times deeper than ours. And that would be the founding director of the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, a man whose summary firing by Trump a year ago, he rightly wears as a badge of honor, the one and only Chris Krebs. The state of our union is actually pretty dire right now, I think, given the digital dependencies we have, the various risks that are out there, the bad guys that are looking to take our money, take our intellectual property to come after our state secrets. That's just one part of it. But the bigger piece is that we have a what I see is a looming collapse of the information ecosystem. We've lost our sights of what truth is and trust is eroding in democracy in our broader institutions. And as I see it, that's in part being actively pushed by one political party that's uh, gaining steam here, as I see it. In the wake of his dismissal by President Trump last November for not only refusing to affirm Trump's unfounded and corrosive claims that the 2020 presidential election was stolen by Joe Biden and the Democrats, but for saying loudly and repeatedly the exact opposite, that 2020 was the, quote, most secure election in American history, Chris Krebs became, among other things, the co-chair of the Commission on Information Disorder at the Aspen Institute, which recently issued a bracing and clarifying final report about the problem at hand, along with a series of serious proposals about how to fix it. Krebs and I talked about that report at length for today's show, as well as the story of how he came to be working for Donald Trump in the first place, why he thinks, despite his firing, that his work was not in vain, what he sees as the biggest threats we face in 2022 and 2024, and the more profound issues of how and why our information ecosystem has become a treacherous and toxic swamp, and whether its effect on American democracy may be terminal. Yeah, it's a lot. 
But if you're looking for another reason to be thankful this year, and God knows we all are, it's that Chris Krebs is still out there, ringing the alarm bell, filling our ears with hashtag real talk, and fighting the good fight against the seemingly inexorable encroachment of the information sphere's very own special version of Hell and High Water. Shockingly, JFK Jr. did not show up in Dallas yesterday afternoon due to his chronic case of not alive. But the QAnon crowd didn't lose hope because rumors began to circulate that JFK Jr. would instead appear at a concert by the Rolling Stones that evening. Guys, come on. You can't always get what you want. But if you try sometimes, you might find... You just might find you get what you need, which is medication. A little levity to start our day here with the one and only Chris Krebs, a man who a few years ago was just a brilliant policy guy laboring in obscurity and now is sort of a resistance hero, right? That's fair to say, right? Don't you think, Chris, you're a resistance hero now? Well, I certainly was laboring in obscurity as a (laughs) bit of a policy wonk, I'll tell you that much. And then I got kind of thrust into the mainstream uh, about this time last year. And I've kind of just become a very one-dimensional person at this point, uh, one-issue voter, so to speak. And I see a lot of attacks out there on democracy and um, pretty focused on making sure that we don't go down this deep, dark, autocratic, authoritarian uh, rabbit hole. Well, welcome to the club. It's good to have you here in the land of apocalyptic fear and loathing that we explore on Hell and High Water. You know, I've been wanting to have you on the show for a while, but this week gave us an excuse, not that we needed one, but with the republication of this report that you had a lot to do with, the Aspen Institute Commission on Information Disorder, the final report issued on November 15th. And I want to talk about it a little bit because we're going to talk about a lot of the issues that you're alluding to in the course of this conversation, but just for the kind of topical news value, you guys, you know, out there, the Aspen Institute and August Institution decided to kind of tackle one of the, I think, central existential problems facing the world, you know, not just America. I want to talk about the report, but I'm curious about how you, you know, I know you have an affiliation out there at Aspen now after leaving government service unceremoniously at the hand of Donald Trump about a year ago, as you said, just talk a little bit about how the project came about and what you guys saw as the goal and how you went about putting together what is, I think, a very valuable piece of work. Yeah. So at about this time last year, I was trying to figure out what was next for me in life. I was reflecting upon the things that I had not been able to get done in government and the areas where I think we needed a little bit more, or in some cases, a lot more strategic thought and and a solid whole of government, whole of society, whatever cheesy term you want to use, uh, roadmap for getting to good. And as I was thinking about dropping a letter in the desk for my successor at CISA, I had two things on that letter and CISA is the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. It's about three years old and it was in part charge of helping state and local election administrators secure their elections. But that list had two things on it. One was ransomware and we've seen what's happened over the last year with ransomware, how it's really exploded on the stage. Hundreds of millions of dollars going to Russia and elsewhere out of the U.S. And then the second thing was this broader disinformation problem. And I'd been sitting kind of on the tactical edge of countering disinformation in government. In fact, just the other day, the Department of Justice indicted a couple Iranians for attempting to interfere in the 2020 election. And it really kind of flooded back to me all the things we were doing at the time 
as their various activities were popping on to the mainstream, you know, the things that we were doing in near real time to counter their efforts. And so I thought, look, you know, we can keep this operational tactical piece going, but we need to sit back and think, what are the structural issues here? And so as I was yapping my mouth on TV and elsewhere, you know, I'd been working with Craig Newmark for quite some time on disinformation problems. And through the Aspen Institute, you know, he helped support the establishment of a commission. And they said, hey, do you want to come in and be the co-chair of this commission? And, and I think I thought about it for half a second and jumped in with both feet. And so we took a, a couple months to pull together a pretty august set of representatives and commissioners. And we launched in April of 2021. So you got this report here and the, you know, the title is itself evocative, right? Because it speaks of information disorder. And the report starts by saying, information disorder is a crisis that exacerbates all other crises. When bad information becomes as prevalent, persuasive, and persistent as good information, it creates a chain reaction of harm. So just talk about what information disorder means and how you guys decided to unpack that problem. The report kind of goes into, in some depth, into what the kind of causes are, what you mean by it when you use that term, which is, as I say, quite evocative, but like what the underpinnings of it are. And then you get to solutions. We can talk about those in a little bit, but information disorder means what? So we tend to, in the broader discourse, talk about disinformation and misinformation and even malinformation. And those terms don't have a whole lot of meaning, I think, to the casual consumer of information. It's an academic piece. It's a researcher piece that distinguishes between what, you know, mis, dis and mal actually mean. But together, whether it's intentional false information or it's true information that's been weaponized, it falls within this broader context. And Claire Wardle with first draft first coined the term, I think, but it's information disorder. And it's it's a lack of trust in institutions, in the purveyors and conveyors and amplifiers of information for whatever purposes. And the way I look at it is in the joke I've made in the past, whether it's funny or not, doesn't matter. Uh, I'll be the judge of that. But <laughs> disinformation, whether it's propaganda, fake news, whatever you want to call it, conspiracy theories, is kind of like it's been around since the beginning of human history. The joke is it's the world's third oldest profession. The second oldest profession is actually intelligence collection. (laughs) I won't talk about the first. Although the second, the intelligence collection is often on the first. (laughs) Yes, yes. (laughs) As long as you define prostitution in the broad enough terms, that's pretty much all intelligence collections about prostitution of various kinds. The Russians are quite good at that. They 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 see a thirsty person and they go after them. Yeah. So that first piece of intelligence collection really feeds into broader structural issues that make a pervasive environment for information disorder. It's power structures, right? It's people that want to achieve their their power goals. They want money. They want influence, whatever it is. I don't care what time it is. If it was a thousand years ago or if it was just this week, you know, that's really, as I see it, what kind of underpins this broader information disorder, power, money, influence. And what's particularly bad about right now is that the ecosystem is so broad. There's so much information. Truly, the internet has accelerated the flow and the availability of information. And we have had moments like this in human history before. You know, the Gutenberg Press, the mimeograph, radio, TV. There are always these moments that we struggle with. And that's part of what we're trying to sort through right now is like in this new moment with 
everything out there that's so hard to grasp with this unthinkable complexity of the environment, which is a William Gibson quote from Neuromancer. How do we deal with this and survive as a people? Yes. And so every technological iteration has increased the reach and the speed of information. Yep. That's for sure. The big difference, right, with the internet is obviously the democratization of it, right, where it's now the gatekeepers are gone. Everyone's plugged in. You talk about William Gibson. You know, I was one of the early people who helped to start Wired Magazine, and we were all kind of both utopian and in some ways dystopian at the same yeah. time. We were all utopian about changes that were going to happen, but also we were hiring William Gibson and, and people like that to write these very dark pieces about what the underbelly of this could be. And now the underbelly is the overbelly, right? And information disorder as a term, like if I went out in America right now, as I often do as a reporter, everyone agrees that our information ecosystem is disordered. You know, Stephen Colbert is talking about QAnon. They would all say, yeah, there's information disorder. The mainstream media is a bunch yeah. of liars and fraud. You yeah. know, it's, there's almost unanimity that our information system is broken. But people see what that means in very different ways. And you guys define it in the more traditional sense, right? You are focused, even though the information disorder is the broader catch-all. You're very much focused on miss, dis, and mal, as you put it, right? I mean, th those are the things that are running rampant. And I'm, I think those are symptoms. And I think that's one of the things you guys strongly identify. They're symptoms, not causes. They're not the problem. I think that's right. But, you know, when you really dig into the report, there are aspects of it that, frankly, I was surprised landed in the final report from the viewpoint of where I started in this effort. I was yeah. really thinking about platforms, you know, what can we do to increase transparency? But where we ended, again, this goes to that power piece, that right. that influence and money. You know, when you think about people that are in organizations that have, you know, governments that have been in power, they use information as a tool to subjugate and to maintain power to achieve their strategic interests. And that's what we saw in 2016 with the Russians interfering with the 2016 election. It's what we saw with the Iranians try to attempt with their disinformation campaign. But it goes back to, again, people subjugating others for their own purposes. And so that that is not just symptoms. It is trying to understand what the broader information ecosystem looks like and how it's being abused. Totally. All I meant was that the misinformation, disinformation, malinformation are in some ways symptomatic of, yeah. of these yeah. deeper problems, which are about power and about inequity and about democratization, too. Yes. Because just for every authoritarian government that's misusing the information ecosystem for its purposes to subjugate, as you just put it, there's the other problem, which is that like we're all nuts. Right. The, oh. bigger, the, <laughs> the other problem is us. Right. Yep. I mean, you guys point to things in the report about platform transparency and about the fact that the, the constant search for ad revenue, for instance, it creates an incentive to get the most ad revenue is not an incentive to improve public discourse. That's one of right. the things the report talks about. I look at the Facebook problem and I think, well, the problem isn't I mean, the problem is Facebook. They do a lot of bad shit. But the bigger problem is that we all want to hate each other. And we're like, we want we as a collectivity want to be fed information that's either that enforces our biases. We like the titillating. We like the outrageous. We like the angry. I don't mean you and me. I mean, as a collective 350 million person country, that seems to be what they're very good at. They're very good at giving us what we want. And what we want, apparently, is lies, misinformation, conspiracy theories, and things that divide us rather than things that unite us. Yeah. It's an incredible capitalist organism, Facebook is. It yeah. feeds us back what we want. Well, and that's kind of my takeaway from this entire experiment. I mean, I think these are important recommendations because we have to make progress and reduce harms to the greatest extent we can. But on the supply side, we can fix all the supply problems. But the demand right. side is 
how do we fix that? And so we try to address some of those issues with civic engagement and building back a, a sense of community. And I, I, my own theory is that COVID really made this so much worse. Because In what it, ways? Yeah. Well, I think it broke down a lot of those kind of internal barriers that people have, the filters, right? I mean, it's almost like it turned us into a bunch of Phineas Gages where we're not afraid to go online and just say stuff. Where yeah. at a kid's soccer game or at church or at the store, you wouldn't just be spouting off to, to the earlier clip of JFK Jr. still alive. Yeah. Like, no, you're, you're insane. Right. But you go online into your, your birds of a feather group, yeah. and it's perfectly acceptable. In fact, you get cred points for saying these things. So I think as we continue to emerge from the pandemic and as we can get back into a sense of community and engagement, hopefully some of those filters will introduce in there some sort of introspection of like, whoa, that, did I say that? That's crazy. I can't believe I believed that. Alternatively, I, people are too far gone. Well, right. But I mean, I guess that's the thing. Like, as I look through, you know, you guys make a bunch of points, right? Just the bullet points here that disinformation is a symptom, you know, that there's a clear absence of leadership. That's a problem. Yes. Sure. The trade-off on free speech, very difficult. We are committed to certain civil libertarian principles. We want people to be able to say what they want. The internet has this great democratic promise. People should be able to say what they want to say. It shouldn't be about gatekeepers. We all agree with that. But you know, leads us down some very dangerous paths. Platform transparency is a problem. I obviously agree with that. The ad revenue thing we just talked about, we need more local news. The withering of local news has been a disaster right. in a lot of communities. I see that every time I travel around. That's why they turn to Facebook, because they have no organic local news source that they trust, right? All of these things are huge problems. I mean, huge. And you guys are great at identifying them. And then you say, to be clear, information disorder is not a problem that can be completely solved. Its eradication is not the end goal. Instead, the commission's goal is to mitigate misinformation's worst harms with prioritization for the most vulnerable segments of our society. Right? You agree with that? Yes? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> this is not an, an, a, this is a manageable event, right? Right. Issue. Yeah. Yeah. It is not entirely solvable, nor, nor should it be. Right. So you got to start somewhere. And so the primary focus of the effort was democracy, yes. public health and the marginalized communities. I agree with you. We've had conspiracy theories forever. You know, I play the Colbert thing because it's funny, but also because it's fucking crazy, right? right? QAnon's a crazy thing. And, and, you know, you and I and all of our well-educated rich friends can all point QAnon and go, they're all fucking nuts. But, you know, it was a huge bad thing that happened and still is out there, right? It's still out there. They're still down there in Dallas rallying, thinking that right. JFK Jr. is going to come back from the crypt and lead us all, lead them all. I don't know. Even though their big theory about Donald Trump being reinstalled in government to fall apart, they found a new set of crazy ass theories, right? Why is it so much worse now? Like there have always been conspiracy theories, like the moon landing was a fake, et cetera, et cetera. We've heard these things our whole lives, but they seem so pervasive now. We'll talk more about them later on. But what is it about the disorder in the information structure ecosystem that has led to what seems to be a much worse condition right now than it's been in our lifetimes. You're a little younger than me, but like it's never been like this before in my lifetime that I can remember. I don't think I was living in the dark. I think it's actually like appreciably worse. Oh, for sure. I absolutely think it's appreciably worse. I think part of it, as you already touched on, is just that gross expansion of the information ecosystem. It's the internet. It's the devices. You know, how many hours do people spend on their phones and Facebook on TikTok? My God, you know, I have a TikTok account just to dive into all the crazy QAnon, you know, Trump's coming back stuff. Right. And it's really frightening. But I think it goes back again to that power structure piece. Like there are people that are actively pushing, amplifying, yes. generating content, making it worse. 
because they're grifting. Yes. Like a lot of this 2020 election stuff is a grift. It's, it's about a, money and power, but money too. Well, some people it's power, right? Like Trump's in it for sure, power sure, sure, and sure. money because, you know, he's hundreds of millions of dollars in his war chest. And then there are others like Mike Flynn's out there and what, yeah. whatever he's up to. He apparently wants a single religion for all of us. That seems to be his new thing. Mm. I know. All right. Serenity now. Uh, deep breaths, Chris. Deep breaths. <laughs> Yeah, I, but again, I think it's just the availability, the accessibility, it's the nonstop feed and then the platforms have dialed in their algorithms to build up that need, the addictiveness, the lizard brain. They're tapped into it. They know what gets us riled up and wanting more and more and more. And to your point, it's not like, you know, maybe it's a little bit of like kitten videos and cat videos, but primarily it's things that get that fight or flight instinct going and, and want us to engage more. So of the various recommendations in the report, again, all of which, like many reports of this kind, and I say as a fan of the Aspen Institute, been there many times. Those places where they would let you stay when you go out there are very nice. It's very like it feels very, very civilized to go out and do a thing there. It's very good. Smart people, grandees, the great and the good, you know, and you read this report and you go, wow, but I agree with all these things, you know, how do we build platforms and tools that are designed to bridge divides, build empathy and strengthen trust among communities rather than tear it all down. Yeah. Accountability norms, public restoration funds. It all sounds to me like, yes, sure. But really, is that really enough? Are there things in the report that you cite and you think, I don't, again, we agree. It's not going to eradicate it, but even to, as you said, manage it, to mitigate it. What are the reports suggestions that you think, man, if we could do these two or three things, and I was God, yeah. and we could make them happen. They would really make a dent in this problem, like tangible things we could do. So, you know, I think it depends on which chair or commissioner you ask, they're going to have a different answer. But you're the one on today. Uh, so let's stick with you. I won't make you speak for Katie Couric here. I have two. And the first one is more about a number of different recommendations that all roll up together. But the way I see it from a platform perspective, we're kind of sitting in a post-Enron moment where we've had a collapse of transparency and disclosure, and we need to develop some kind of Sarbanes-Oxley-like Christmas tree legislation that puts disclosure requirements on the platforms. And so if you look at like, there's the high reach content disclosure, content moderation, platform disclosure, ad transparency, some of the section 230 stuff, some of the research, it all rolls up into this. Here's a set of requirements for today's platforms of the things that they have to make available. There is no judgment on whatever they make available. We have to start with understanding what the hell they're doing in the first place. And we don't even have that. That that was what's so remarkable about the Francis Hagan, the Facebook whistleblower disclosures, is there's this wealth of information that we wouldn't have otherwise had. Right. We cannot and should not rely on whistleblowers going forward to provide that level of transparency. So we need a clear set of actions and protections, both for the platforms and for any of the researchers and journalists that engage in this. So that we can fully understand how these things are being operated, ensure that there's some consistency. And then there's a second stage, as I see it, of, of regulation, legislation, whatever, that will actually start dictating some of the like, this is good, this is bad. Now, I, I am not going there. You know, I think what's remarkable about this yeah. report that you touched on earlier is, as I see it, it generally, we don't even have to answer any First Amendment or freedom of speech questions because we're not infringing. Right. upon any freedom of speech issues, government or otherwise, with these recommendations. We're trying to just provide a, a foundation of additional information. The second aspect of that, though, is that 
today's social media platforms are not necessarily tomorrow's social media platforms. Right. And so right. what I am hoping we lay out here is a set of best practices that then I don't care if it's the next getter or gab or whatever the Trump truth thing is. Grifter, G-R-F-T-R. That's the next one coming up, I think. That's the Trump Bannon platform. Grifter. I mean, I, honestly, what what I find so remarkable about every new kind of right wing social media platform is that they think that they can just spin this thing up yeah. tomorrow and then it's, yeah. it's going to yeah. be all, you know, <laughs> dude, the technology underpinnings that are necessary for successful social media platforms are immense, almost out of the grasp or touch of how these folks are resourced. These guys are resourced. Well, yes. And, you know, the reality is, as you say, there's an incredibly sophisticated tech underpinning, but there's also the network effects issue, you know, of actually what it takes to actually build an audience that's large enough right. uh, that it would matter to someone like Donald Trump, you know, even on the right, right? You know, with people out there, millions of them who are still Facebook addicts, again, which is, you know, bad enough. You know, I mentioned Steve Bannon a second ago. I want to play a little sound uh, of Bannon because, of course, Bannon was recently in court. In fact, he was in court on the same day that your report from Aspen came out, Chris. That was not intentional. I promise you. I'm, I'm sure it wasn't. I mean, you know, no one wants to have to compete with Steve Bannon for airtime. So uh, anyway, so Bannon, Bannon comes out of court. Uh, he makes a statement to this flock of reporters who are waiting for him outside the courtroom. Let's take a listen to what he said. I'm telling you right now, this is going to be the misdemeanor from hell for Merrick Garland, Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden. Joe Biden ordered Merrick Garland to prosecute me from the White House lawn when he got off Marine One. And we're going to do, we're going to go on the offense. We're tired of playing defense. We're going to go on the offense on this and stand by. They, by the way, by the way, by the way, you should understand Nancy Pelosi took, is taking on Donald Trump and Steve Bannon. She ought to ask Hillary Clinton how that turned out for them, okay? We're going on the offense. You know, there is no doubt that Steve Bannon has been on offense and he's been offensive in a lot of ways since he first came on the national stage. <laughs> uh, and in that clip, in typical Bannon fashion, you know, he just comes right out and states as a fact that Joe Biden ordered Merrick Garland to do this thing. You know, an obvious yes, lie right in the middle of that statement. But he's me. also out there saying, uh, yeah. you know, we got to go on offense, right? He's rallying these troops and also obviously welding himself to Trump. I mean, forget about the politics of it for now, Chris. Just what do you think when you hear that? Is that a matter of the information disorder that you've been talking about? I mean, Bannon is embracing this charge of contempt that everybody thought he would be afraid of. He's basically saying, fuck you and taking this as an opportunity to promote his social media platform yeah. shown by him, you know, live streaming uh, a video before going into court for him. This is just another opportunity to broadcast his lies, right? I mean, that that's exactly it. I mean, the, things have been so, and I hate saying the word polarized because polarization assumes you have equal ends of a spectrum here. And we clearly are not Do in not. that. Right. And I actually had a lot of, you know, some of my feedback early on in this process was like, this is not a polarization issue because we actually have a group of, I used to say a subset of the Republican Party that is moving orthogonal to democracy. And I'm actually, I think it's probably actually more than a subset, at least in Washington, D.C. So we have to think through every decision we make, particularly right now, has to be made in a strategic sense because you know how they're going to play it. You know how Bannon is going to spin it. You know how Trump is going to spin it. And that's got to be part of the crisis communication strategy. And yeah. that's that's actually, if you look in here to one of the recommendations about election security, so we're saying, yes, you have to increase, to continue to increase the security of the election systems, but we also have to invest in communications capabilities of election officials 
you have to control the narrative. And I don't mean that in the sense of like, you know, the ministry of truth, but it's provide more information, get to the end point before the bad guys are able to set their narrative. And that's, that's what's happening. They're setting the narratives and everyone's reactive as a result. You know, Bannon did, um, I've interviewed him a bunch of times in various settings, sometimes on the record, sometimes off the record, sometimes on television. And whenever they're in public, they're always combative. He's a showman and he likes to fight. He likes to tangle with what's, the more you fight him, the more he enjoys it in some ways. But I remember he did this interview with Michael Lewis back in 2018, I think, where he said, the Democrats don't matter. The real opposition is the media. And the way to deal with the media is to flood the zone with shit. Yep. And that's that's it, right? Flood the zone with shit is sort of the mantra and the guiding philosophy because those guys recognize that, and I, I take your point about polarization, but it is the case that there's no doubt there's no equality between the what's going on, on the left and on the right. No, it's, it's a symmetry, absolutely. But, but they take advantage of that asymmetry. And it is the case that, you know, I get people all the time, Democrats who are like, why do you ever even talk to Steve Bannon? Why do you ever interview Steve Bannon on television? I say, I don't know. Like, it seems like to me, if you think he's a bad guy, I want to keep an eye on him. Like, I want to know what he's doing. If I don't talk to him, it's not like he goes away. No. He's still out there flooding the zone with shit to the people who want to eat that shit. And if we don't know about it, how are we going to fight it? That's why I watch the Trump rallies. It's brutal. It, right. is, it is so toxic. But I watch him because you got to know what they're saying. Yes, you got to know. And that brings us to a good place to take a very quick break because we can talk about the titanic, epic, world historical, like kind of Godzilla versus Mothra fight between Donald Trump and Chris Krebs that took place about a year ago. And that and that put him back in the private sector. We'll do that in part two of this edition of Hell and High Water with Chris Krebs after these messages. You thought there couldn't be a year more disorienting, disruptive, and disturbing than 2020? Well, 2021 is right up there, pretty close. I mean, it's kind of hard to get your head around everything that happened, but here at The Recount, that's what we do. So, John Battelle, my co-founder, partner, and the CEO of the company and I are going to be hosting a live event on Thursday, December 9th at 2.30 p.m. Eastern Time, 11.30 a.m. Pacific Time. Battelle and I will be unpacking the top stories in politics, tech, business, and culture from 2021, from the insurrection to vaccinations, the metaverse to crypto, the culture wars, and more. JB and I, recounting 2021. Register for this event at recount.co slash recounting 2021. That's recount.co slash recounting 2021 to watch Patel and I deliberate, dissect, and discuss the tumultuous year that was. And we're back with Chris Krebs for part two of Hell and High Water. We're talking misinformation, disinformation, malinformation, all of it. If you took all of those kinds of information that we don't like and put them in a giant ball and then hit them with a neutron bomb, they would give you some kind of Japanese monster that would look like Donald Trump. That's what you would get. And <laughs> and I want to go back to you, Chris, appearing in the United States Senate in a hearing on election security and administration on December 16th, 2020, after you'd been fired by Donald Trump. This is how you started that hearing. This is your opening statement. And we'll go from there and we'll go back and then we'll go forward. But let's hear this. This is a big moment. The election had been called. Donald Trump was saying it's not legit. It's been stolen. But January 6th was still ahead of us when you gave this statement on December 16th of 2020. 
On November 12, 2020, government and industry representatives from the election security community issued a joint statement reflecting a consensus perspective that the 2020 election was the most secure in U.S. history. It was based on an intimate understanding of how our elections work here in the U.S. It was based on the increase in paper ballots and audits across the nation. And probably most importantly, it was based on the professionals, the heroes that conduct elections in this country. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. Of that, I have no doubt. And all these things, I loved like hearing them in retrospect. I mean, first of all, the heroes. I mean, I agree. Don Trump does not uh, agree, and nor do well, tens of millions of Americans now who think that the people who conduct elections needed to be thrown out. We'll talk about all of that. You know, I'm just curious about how we, where your head was at when you sat down in front of that committee, because Ron Johnson, you know, was parading his conspiracy theories. I mean, and you'd been fired. Like, was that an emotional thing for you? It was the most high profile thing you'd ever done. And you were making a statement that's now kind of like it's going to be in your the first paragraph of your obituary <laughs> about how the 2020 election was the most secure in U.S. history. I'm not looking forward to your death, by the way, but I'm saying, you know, that's what people know you for now. Right. Yeah. That trails you around everywhere. So I'm curious how you were feeling about it at the time, your certainty level of it at the time and your certainty level of it today. The more I think about that hearing, the more pissed off with myself I get. I should have been more strident. I should have been more aggressive when Senator Johnson and Hawley and Rand Paul, Paul was, you know, they wouldn't ask me, you know, Paul didn't ask me any questions. He, you know, did his little oratory thing. I, I you know, uh, I, I, I just <laughs> serenity, it, serenity now, Chris. Yeah. I. So anyway, like even the name of the hearing pisses me off. Election irregularities. I actually said election right that time because I did say the wrong word on a morning show once. Um, <laughs> look, it, it <laughs> it's hard with the irregularities coming after it. You really want to go into erection, <laughs> erection irregularities. It's hard not to say that. I'm like, did I just oh, say that? I'm just going to no. keep going. I didn't say that. Nobody heard that. Nobody heard that. <laughs> like I get it. It was face the nation with Margaret Brennan. And I'm like, we're going to find that. You should now find and that. Clip. In, right. But we're going to insert it right here. Every single Republican on the Hill that continues to support these erection election irregularities has like, oh my god i did say that it's on all over twitter i can't believe i just said something about inserting something and then somebody talk. then somebody else anyway so that was a pretty intense moment and it was actually the first congressional hearing that i had done in you know four years meaning ever where i actually wrote the testimony front to back usually in government you have staff that'll write that but i wrote that front to back so every word in there was mine and it's such a remarkable spot where we have purported leaders of this country who will either play into Trump's game or will play to their base. And you actually saw it manifest afterwards at the state level where even in the state of Georgia, where you had you know various legislation come through about addressing election irregularities, where leadership just said to their members, it was like, hey, look, bring whatever crazy bills forward. If it addresses the base, if it makes your constituents feel better, We'll deal with it in conference. We'll deal with it later. Just let's respond. And so we get to this posture right now where you've got 56, 74, whatever percent of the Republican Party that right. doesn't trust elections. Right. It's because they've been ginned up. They didn't yes. come to that of position course, organically. Of course. Of course. They yeah. were led there by the nose. Yeah. So tell me about, you know, you're basically uh Atlanta boy, right? Mm -hmm. Born in the South. You go to University of Virginia. You go to George Mason. You get a law degree. 
tell me the story of how you end up on Team Trump, because I know you probably never thought you were on Team Trump, but you were like Fiona Hill and other people who went in. But they, you knew what Trump was like when you decided to go in. But just walk through the history of what puts you in a position where you were considered for the job that you were considered yeah. for and, and what you thought about what you were doing to come in to run, to start really a new thing to deal with cybersecurity and to deal with security of our elections in the wake of 2016. What's the road, the Chris Krebs road to that yeah. choice? So I had served in the, in the Bush administration. Were you a Republican then? Yeah. You were a Republican. I mean, look, I, I grew up yeah. in the South. Both my parents are from Alabama and it's just like, it's kind of, you know, white in the South particularly with the, the Alabama nexus, yeah. and you tend to be a Republican. And so, you know, I, I tend to be historically, I'll say that much, you know, conservative, but I find myself now, and whether it's reactionary or just I'm growing up, <laughs> much more socially liberal, right? Just, right. you know, I'm all on board with everybody having equal rights, tell you that much. So, I, you know, is, is, I was at Microsoft. I was doing some work there and I, you know, I. You're a director of cybersecurity policy yes, at Microsoft, right? Yep. Which is not just doing some work. That's a pretty important job at a very big and important company in the tech space. Yeah. So, so right. Leading U.S. government related cybersecurity policy. And I, you know, I worked in a number of different capacities with Kirsten Nielsen. And so she came in, she was John Kelly, the first Homeland Security secretary. She was his chief of staff. And, and I was like, hey, look, I'm happy to come in if I can make an impact. Let me know. And I had the opportunity to come in and be an advisor to Kelly. And then he goes up to the White House. Just pause for a moment on that. Right. So, again, in 2016 election, you had watched Donald Trump run oh, yeah. for office, run yeah. the way he ran. I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but the way you just described yourself was you're like the kind of Republican who was perfectly happy to go work in the Bush administration. But Donald Trump was a different kind of Republican. Yeah. So, you know, Kirsten Nielsen now asked you to come in and your thought is what? Like, this man's a lunatic, but I will think maybe oh, there, I can help. Or, or what was yeah. your view of him and it? What was about to happen? So I feel, generally speaking, I have a public service bent, right? I've got a kind of that public you know, national security oriented mission thread that runs through me. And I had an opportunity to come in, but there were long conversations as a family with my wife about, you know, are we comfortable with this? Is there a scarlet T that's going to be associated with serving in this administration? Right. And, you know, what I, I honestly, I told my wife, I was like, look, I'm going to go in and, you know, this will be 12 months, 18 months, maybe. Uh, <laughs> three and a half years later at the 18 month yeah. mark, you know, I didn't know I was going to be doing a whole lot of election security work. I thought I was just right. going to be doing, you know, plain old cybersecurity. And I worked really well and closely with the Obama cybersecurity team. I mean, that's the thing about cybersecurity in general is that it's, it's not, not partisan, partisan, not ideological, right? Even today, the policy pull through sure, all the way back to frankly, the Clinton administration is consistent. There are no radical departures on right. a cybersecurity defense perspective over the last five five administrations. And that's a good thing. And I was part of that. And I felt I could go in and be honest to that tradition as well as, you know, what what I felt was my core beliefs. And so, you know, it's one of those things where you get up every day and you walk in or, you know, you look in the mirror you're like, all right, this is the day. You know, this is what's going to happen today. And there were moments like in Helsinki where Trump said, why would Russia attack or whatever the specific yeah. phrasing was? And yeah. It was like, you got to be kidding me, man. He denied it very strongly. Putin did. I have no reason to believe to think he's not telling the truth. Right. And, and then the next day, he was even... like, oh, I forgot a word. Not yeah. Yeah. right. I mean, right. there were moments like that all throughout. But at that 18 month mark, again, when I came in not understanding or not thinking I was going to do a lot of election security work at the 18 month mark, 
I had a conversation with my wife. I was like, look, never in my life, my career, am I going to ever do something as meaningful or as important as this? And like, you know, honestly, what what more could you want than to be in a position to defend democracy? And, right. and that was it. And we made that decision. And, you know, thankfully, she trusted me. And, you know, I, I wouldn't be anywhere without my wife and her support through all this and family support, of which I was incredibly lucky. And not everybody has that opportunity. But came in and every day was a, all right, we got just got to get through this day. Got to get through this day. So this is the moment in 2018, right? Basically, November 2018, you get made director of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, yep. right? Which I think is what you're talking about here. Yeah, so I was like, Senate this, confirmed yeah. in June, June 23rd of, of 2018. And then we elevated that, the piece of Homeland into a standalone agency like TSA and FEMA. And that was November 16th, 2018. You basically have two years, right? This is post midterms in 2018. And yep. you thought the job of CISA was to make sure that basically, I, I, mean, I'm, I'm, I am going to put words in your mouth here just to summarize, I think based on what I've read and what I've heard you say, you was like, the election was fucked with in 2016 by Russians. And we want to make sure that doesn't happen again. And we're trying to take seriously the remit and the mandate to try to make sure that we have a free and fair election that isn't diddled with by yeah. malign actors, right? That's basically what you thought you were doing for two years. Yeah, no, and that's what the mission was. Yeah, you know, the way I talk about CISA is the nation's risk advisor, but really what it means is they're an enabler. So state and local government, state governments under the Constitution, right? We've all heard that a thousand times now. The states run elections, so we were there to help them. And, and look, states just aren't equipped to deal with a Russia-level adversary. And so we were there to help them while DOD and the intelligence community and the FBI were out doing the offensive push. We were back here helping them, boosting them, giving them a voice, giving them insight. And we did that relentlessly for really three and a half years. So it preceded the 2018 election, but we had three and a half years to game plan right. for the 2020 election. So the election comes and a lot of us, you know, having been through 2016, we were worried about a lot of the same things you were worried about. And we also, I don't think people <laughs> knew for a long time how much work was going on in your shop. Like people were like, is Trump doing the taking this seriously? Is there stuff really happening? Like what's going on? Is Russia going to come back? Are we going to get the Chinese? Are we going to get the Iranians? Are we going to get who? Right. Yeah. All that concern. In addition to are the militias going to do things? Are the polls going to get attacked? We had all these fears, right? Right. We get through it all and election day actually goes pretty smoothly. Again, I remember in real time, all of us who cover this closely were like, hey, this is kind of amazing. Like, there's not a lot of shit that happened here, it seems like. And then you guys come out with the statement that you referred to in the hearing that we just played, where you guys, this group of national state private election officials, joint statement, no evidence of any voting system being compromised in 2020. Trump says there's a deluge of election fraud. There's all these conspiracies flooding the zone. All this stuff is happening. Five days later, you're fired, right? Trump fires you by tweet and says that your statement was inaccurate. There were massive improprieties in fraud. Dead people voted. Poll watchers not allowed into polling locations. I'm reading the tweet right now. Glitches in the voting machines that changed votes from Trump to Biden. People were saying that there was a CIA supercomputer yeah. that changed votes from Trump to Biden. You know, all this shit is out there, right? The, the flood of shit. Yes, yeah. flood the zone with shit. Were you surprised to be fired at that point when the group of you made the statement yeah. on the 12th of November? Were you like, this is it, I'm going to be fired? <laughs> Did you know it was coming? I've used this line a couple times, you know, over the last couple of weeks, but it's like, it was like Thanos, Go right? Go ahead, use it again if it's a good line. Go ahead. It was inevitable. <laughs> so you also have to keep in mind that at that moment in time, so mid-November, yeah. it wasn't what we're hearing today about dead voters and 
election officials changing the rules at the last minute. So I got fired on the 17th, which was a Tuesday. Thursday was when that wild ass crazy press conference at the RNC with Rudy's like whatever running makeup running down and and Ellis and and Sidney Powell talking about dead Venezuelan dictators. So the thrust of that statement was to address those broader foreign attackers, threats, compromising systems. The fraud piece, you know, that was not in our remit, but what, like a week later, Bar AG Barr comes out and says, no, there's no any even approaching significant fraud in this election. And to this day, there have not been established any, well, fraud at any significant level. And any fraud that has been proven has been by Republicans. I mean, it's interesting, though. You know, when Trump fires you on November 17th, those are all the things that he cites in his tweet. You know, it's a little bit of a preview of where we're headed, right? I mean, those weren't really in the water at that point, you know, like dead people voting. Poll watchers not being allowed at polling locations, glitches in the voting machines, all about those bullshit claims. Yes. And he uses all of that as a justification to fire you, even though that was not the stuff they were arguing at this point, but they soon would be. And Trump's Trump's tweet sort of spotlights you in particular, and it brings you into the discussion. But actually, I want to talk about what happened next, which is that Trump lawyer Joe DeGeneva goes on the Howie Carr show on November 30th of 2020. Howie Carr is, you know, a longtime bullshit artist and purveyor of of lies and right-wing talking points. Uh, he's been doing it for years and years and years uh, in the pages of the Boston Herald and on a radio show, which now has a TV platform on, you know, that estimable right-wing media conveyor belt, even further to the right than Fox, uh, known as Newsmax. So I want to laugh at this, but it's there's nothing funny about it. So I'm going to keep a straight face here and say, let's take a listen to Joe DeGeneva talking about Chris Krebs on November 30th of last year. You know, anybody who thinks that this election went well, like that idiot Krebs, who used to be the head of... Oh, Congress yeah, the guy that was on 60 days. Minutes that last guy, night. That guy is a class A moron. He should be drawn and quartered, taken out at dawn and shot. <laughs> yeah, there's Howie Carr chuckling, chuckling at the suggestion of the president's lawyer that an American citizen should be drawn and quartered, taken out at dawn and shot. I ask you, in all seriousness, when you heard that, were you angry, mortified? Did you laugh? Like, what was your view of that? I know you sued the guy later and Newsmax for defamation. We can talk about that. But I mean, at that moment, was that chilling to you, given the environment? Or was that like, did you laugh it off? I can imagine either reaction. It it was like, you got to be fucking kidding me. Like, this is where we are in the national discourse, whether literal or figurative, it doesn't matter. You know, this is completely out of bounds. And it was in the midst of every secretary of state out there, like the Raffensburgers of the world, were getting threats to, you know, and really graphic threats to their wives and children. Yeah. And just, yeah. it just, it's stunning, right? It's stunning. And then, you know, the threats come rolling in. I mean, that was it. The floodgates are wide open. And when you get threats, you get threats online, you get threat phone calls, you get people showing up at your house. What does that look like? Text messages, phone calls, emails, letters in the mail, Facebook Messenger, LinkedIn comments, LinkedIn, you know, mail, uh, in mails or whatever it's called. Everything short of carrier pigeons, frankly. Right. Death threats. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Threats to your children? Gosh, I can't recall if they were specific to kids, but it was your I mean, family. I mean, they were actually like, you know, then starting to move into the like sexual predator 
stuff right. like the projection first off is, uh, is remarkable. Yes. And so, I mean, it was to the point where we had to relocate for about a week and then I had to bring in some security uh, to sit outside the house for, you know, 24 by seven. My, I wasn't comfortable with my kids running outside because who the hell knows who's out there. In the same way that the 2020 election was the most secure in U.S. history will be in the first paragraph of your obituary. And the first paragraph of my obituary will be the only clever thing I've ever said about Donald Trump, which is that everything Trump says is projection or confession, yeah. which basically applies to all the Trumpists also. Everything they say is projection yep. or confession. And relate. the sexual predator thing is right up there at the top of the list, I would say. I get that a lot, too. We all get that a yeah. lot, um, which is like, you know, oh, you must be a pedophile if you don't like Donald Trump. It's like, what? Um, so... You've got the death threats, you've got security and all that. I want to move to the future, but I just st stick with me here in the aftermath. You do the hearing and now it's January and we have an insurrection at hand. Entirely right? predictable. The... Entirely predictable insurrection, by the way. And predictable, but not largely predicted. I mean, let's put it this way. Many people thought... And I, I say that because I know because I was in these conversations and we had them on television. We would say, you know, Bill Maher said it all the time. If Trump loses, he'll try to figure out a right. way to overturn the legitimate election. Many people Mary said Trump that. Trump said that. So many people said yeah. it. Many. But I don't think many people predicted that the Capitol would be sacked. Right. That was not predicted by many people. And I, again, I'm not I'm not trying to say it was shocking in some ways that in retrospect, it's not shocking at all. In the moment, it was pretty shocking. I used to watch it. I was up there. Like, you know, it was pretty shocking to see that happen. Something I never thought I would see in my lifetime. How did you process all of that as kind of, I can't believe I fucking ever worked for this guy? Did you feel any complicity, any guilt? Or did you just sort of go, you know, I'm glad I'm fucking out of there? So let me go back to that predictability piece. It, Please. So 2019, summer 2019, it's just we released a... You know, part of our mission in dis counter disinformation it was to educate, build awareness. And we released a product called the War on Pineapple that basically lays out the five steps of how an influence operation works. At first, it's you start, you identify the issue you want to amplify. You get your accounts and your amplifiers into place. You start yep. pushing the narrative third. Fourth, you take it mainstream. So you get it out of like a Facebook group chat into whatever Newsmax, Fox or whatever. And the fifth and final step is you take it real world. And so this was all predictable. What the Russians did in 16 by pushing people out to protest and counter protest, this was predictable. When Trump in late December goes, it'll be wild. And this is, I think, the first mistake is that whether it's government or the assessors don't understand how Q works, how conspiracy theories work. You don't take words literally, because what's happening is the conspiracy theorists are looking for alternative meanings. Stand back right. and stand by. Okay, stand back and stand right. by. That's one. Get ready. Second, come to the Capitol on January 6th. It'll be wild. Boom. That's our activation call. Everybody get in there. So it was entirely predictable. I wasn't surprised when it happened. I was, I was just disgusted by yeah. the lack of leadership anywhere that was asked, that was called, you know, particularly Trump, and then his ridiculous video in the Rose Garden. That should have been it for everyone that cares about this country and the preservation of democracy. That was it. That should have been the defining line. That's when everybody should have ripped off the band aid and said, we're done. And you saw that kind of very, very briefly. And then they walked it back fleetingly, yeah, fleetingly, right. briefly, and, and insincerely, I would say, obviously, on the basis of what we yes. now see. We're going to talk in the last part of the podcast about what happened then and what's going on now. But Trump eventually leaves. And I guess I ask you this question. 
there are people who kind of look at that, that Trump left. He didn't go to Joe Biden's inauguration, but he left, got on a plane, went to Mar-a-Lago. You know, the Republic held, right? Do you look at that and say, it was a close call, but democracy held. The guardrails, you know, they're banged up and they're dented and they're bent, but they're still intact. And whew, you know, this country's pretty strong. Or do you look at that and go, man, we are fucked that a moron like this doesn't know how to run the government, doesn't know how to stage a conspiracy, is a, a buffoon and incompetent and idiotic, came this close to being able to crash a democratic tradition that's been in place for basically the whole life of the country. Jesus Christ, you know, democracy, yeah, hell, whatever. But like, man, we are on the ropes here. Which of those two more closely describe your point of view? <laughs> the one you went on for about five minutes? The, the latter, of course. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there was a lot of, you know, like you said, like, whew, we dodged a bullet there. Like, no, we didn't dodge a bullet. That was a practice run. That was an A-B test. Which works, which doesn't. Now we know right. how to refine the message going forward. Right? Insurrections without consequences are just practice runs. Right. Right. So we, we know what's in front of us. We're not taking it seriously enough. And we, we actually have, I think, a political class that's in power that says, okay, this is how I stay relevant. This is how I stay in a position of influence. I'm okay. I'll make these little compromises. I won't call out Trump and those that support him. Well, what's in front of us is what we want to talk about next. And I will say that you're letting your Microsoft background, you're like, did Bill teach you that, that AB test thing? That's not a thing that like normal people say in conversation, you know, that AB test thing. That's, that's a techie thing. AB test. Yeah. So that, I mean, again, like with the last election, what we saw was AB testing on narratives of influence. Yeah. So yeah. the foreign stuff didn't work, right? Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. The, the server farm in Germany, the dead Venezuelan dictator, that stuff's too easy to dismiss. But it's the domestic fraud stuff mm, mm. that that resonates. So that's, that's going to be continuing to push that into the future. Right. And we'll go into the future right now. We're going to take a break. Um, didn't pick up on my Bill Gates thing. I thought I could get you to say something either nice or bad about Bill Gates. And, you know, just for <laughs> I've never just met him. To, you sounded like Trump just now. But I never met him. Hardly know him. I don't even know the guy. The guy who started the pandemic. Um, uh, that's a joke. Um, we're here with Chris Krebs on Hell and High Water. We're going to take a break. We'll come back on the other side and talk about how fucked are we in the future. And we're back for part three. Chris Krebs, it's been a good conversation. I've liked it so far. I want to play a crazy person right now. Like I've like we've already played. We're gonna be a bunch of crazy people. <laughs> Which one? Play now. I know there's a lot of crazy people. We you know, but well, we've played some crazy people. This person may be crazier than all the crazy people, and yet he still has a fucking platform. And one, I have a lot of questions to ask wow. about this. But here comes Alex Jones the InfoWars maven last week. Also, busy week in the conspiracy theory, crazy person space. Alex Jones, after getting yet again, found guilty yet again of libel, defamation, you know, everything he's been attacked on for his crazy ass and really just appalling conspiracy theory about Sandy Hook, that it's all crisis actors and nothing actually ever happened there. This is Alex Jones appealing to his followers to give him money. Speaking of the big grift. InfoWars is doing its most important work ever right now. So this is a no-brainer. 
please go to SaveInfoWars.com. Make a $10 donation, a $1,000 donation. Wealthy people out there, your free speech is being destroyed. InfoWars is just the first domino to fall. And if wealthy folks don't start spending their money promoting liberty, promoting freedom, we're going to lose this country and we're going to lose the world to tyranny. So easily mockable, Alex Jones, mockable. Easily mockable, easy to hate. Have you seen Super Deluxe's indie folk song about Alex Jones? No, I have not. It's Nick Lutzko or De- yeah, Super yeah. Deluxe. It's amazing. Yes. It's the funniest thing in the world. Anyway. So, so yes, but here's the thing, right? You listen to Alex Jones. First of all, there are people who are writing checks to him right now. They're writing them. And maybe not that many wealthy people, but some. And the rhetoric there, which is, you know, if you don't start promoting liberty and promoting freedom, we're going to lose this country. We're going to lose the world to tyranny. You know, your free speech is being destroyed. This is stuff that like versions of it are what Glenn Youngkin's running on, you know, and other people who are kind of, you know, that's just another version of the woke left is taking your freedom and stealing your freedom right. of speech. You can't say what you want to say. Cancel right. culture is bad. It's just, it's the craziest version of that. So I guess I ask you, how seriously do you take, and we'll get to the, 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 you were talking about A-B testing before, like we live in conspiracy theory nation now, right? They're everywhere. And we can laugh at the Sandy Hook promise thing. I think it's disgusting and laugh at the same time, the trutherism on Sandy Hook. But the fact that there's this proliferation of these conspiracy theories, is that not the soil, the even the really extreme ones that are more easily dismissed, is that not the kind of fertile soil in which the milder ones, like the election fraud one you were citing before the break, that, that they take root. So, yeah. I, well, first off, I think there is a class of people that actually enjoy being, you know, deplatformed, right? There are politicians that want to get kicked off Twitter because it's, it's a great, I mean, and, and they'll get kicked off Twitter and they'll have a fundraising email out five minutes later, Right. So there's a benefit to that, to get kicked off the mainstream tech platforms. They can talk about censorship. It builds and flows right into their narrative and their their messaging. But I think to your bigger point is it also, the as people keep going further and further out, and we'll just say to the right of the spectrum, whatever, it creates more, to your point, fertile ground for the less offensive and that A-B testing, the less crazy stuff to drop in and not necessarily actually sell people because that's not the point of the the flood of lies, right? And this is Gary Kasparov talks about this all the time, the flood of lies. It's not to convince anyone of any particular thing. It's to undermine confidence. It's to lose sight of what's real, what's true. And once people are in that post-truth environment, then they're more susceptible to alternative narratives and they're easier marks, basically. Once the people can't think for themselves anymore of what's real and what's true, then they're influenceable. And I think that's where we are right now. And that's what the future holds. The more of these platforms and the more of these voices and whether it's the dirty dozen on disinformation, public health disinformation or whatever, they're just they're having a field day right now. So yeah, public health disinformation is another topic and, and we, we don't want to spend, I mean, we could spend a lot of time on it, but you mentioned COVID earlier as may having made the problem greater. And even though I just played some sound, I want to play a little more sound here because I want to play Aaron Rodgers. We did a great super cut of Aaron Rodgers' Pat McAfee show appearance on the recount that a lot of people really liked. I want to play this and ask you a question about it on the other side, because I do again, I think, unlike Alex Jones, who everyone thinks is a fucking lunatic and is, is a cancer, 
a lot of people love Aaron Rodgers or used to. I mean, I think probably still a lot of people do. Let's listen to Aaron Rodgers talking about his decision to deceive the public and his teammates and his sport about whether or not he was vaccinated. I'm not, uh, you know, some sort of anti-vax flat earther. I consulted with a now good friend of mine, Joe Rogan. I've been taking monoclonal antibodies, ivermectin. I feel pretty incredible. You know, that is what the media has been trying to do. They're trying to shame and out uh, and cancel all of us non-vaccinated people. I realize I'm in the crosshairs of the woke mob right now. The great MLK said that you have a moral obligation to object to unjust rules. I am somebody who's a critical thinker. So it was my opinion that that wasn't rooted in any science. Did you slow that audio down? Yeah, we, we, we just moved some stuff around and we gave it a little background music. But here's my question. Aaron Rodgers, victim or culprit? Culprit. He lied. Come well, on. There's no doubt that he lied. And there's no doubt that he's a culprit in that sense. Well, I want to be more precise about my question. Here's a guy that every sports writer that I know previously said, Aaron Rodgers, a nice, thoughtful, smart guy, like unusually for a professional Went athlete. That's what they all said. Right. Not not an idiot. You know, I have a friend who lives in Chico, California. People there think he's like a god who walks on the water, walks on earth, not just because he's a professional quarterback, because he's a nice guy, smart guy, thoughtful guy. You read African-American sports writers who said they had great conversations about race with Aaron Rodgers in the course of his career. Now he's spouting this bullshit. And so my question about victim versus culprit is, is that a guy who's been victimized by misinformation about COVID? Or is that guy a culprit who's now spreading misinformation about COVID or both? I don't buy into the theory that he has been a victim of COVID disinformation. He's an active participant, as I see it. And, right. you know, he could be as smart as is just about anybody out there, but everybody's got a blind spot and it, it kind of shows up in the strangest ways. You know, yeah, he could be a completely empathetic person and is, you know, a voice of reason, particularly in like the Kaepernick space, but he's got a blind spot here. And I don't know what led to it. I think took a lot of people by surprise, Took certainly took me by surprise. Not that we should be holding NFL quarterbacks up as some like paragon of virtue and thought leadership, even though the Manning Monday Night Football calls are it's pretty pretty fucking good right pretty fucking good yeah let's let's be clear let's let's not let's let's be for the manning brothers i've never been a a big manning fan until now both of the mannings i couldn't i never cared but now like cooper too right you gotta you gotta have you got there three of them but yeah they're they're fantastic but i'll say this i don't spend a whole lot of time thinking of aaron Rodgers. Well, well no but but it goes to your other point which is the point i really want to now transition to which is we've come out of a period in which the defining feature of our lives we're coming out of slowly, but but definitely, I think, hopefully, unless we get like the gamma variant, we're coming out of this pandemic and we're more divided than we were before. And we're divided over that. And, and misinformation, disinformation, malinformation, conspiracy theories about COVID have defined the culture war over a basic question of like public health in a way that right. no one ever, again, who thought that the question of like, in a country where every fucking kid gets vaccinated up the wazoo for a million things, all of a sudden the anti-vax conspiracy that was once really fringe is now like at the center of a culture war that we've had for the last 18 months. Donald Trump was part of that for sure. That's what we're coming out of. And we're headed into 22 and 2024 with another big lie about an election. The two big like in our political sphere and in our cultural public health sphere were cleaved on totally alternate realities about what happened in 2020 in the election and in the pandemic. 
I don't mean to be alarmist, but I ask you, as you look to 2022 and 2024, like what, what the stage is set for something and it doesn't seem like it's good. So what do you worry about? Like, what are the specific things you worry about that could, I don't want to, well, end American democracy? Is that too dramatic? Yeah. So there are a couple of things. And frankly, this is not a single party issue. I think what you're seeing in the states, right, with all the legislation passed, the fraud in Arizona, you hear, you know, the news coming out of Wisconsin where they want to dismantle the Elections Commission and have the state legislature take over elections so that they can control the outcome. Like, that's right. that's my biggest fear is that you right. have these political hacks, these partisans, Fincham in Arizona, Jody Heiss going in Georgia, where they're coming into a position where they could be the secretary of state and responsible for administering election and then having their the ability to influence the certification or non-certification of, of an election like that is that's first order of business cleaning that right. up. Yeah, and, you know, given your background, right, you're still worried about hacking, right? Sure. Yeah, you're well, still worried. Yes, but let me put this out there: like hacking, like technical hacking of systems, it's harder, and there are more consequences. If the Russians or the Chinese or the Iranians were to get into a system and change a vote, make some sort of manifestation of a technical attack, that I'm telling you right now, that would end up in war. That is yes, a it's World War Three. Well right? past the red line. Yes, disinformation right. campaigns, sending emails and intimidating people. There's no Geneva Convention equivalent here that, that right. would, you know, there's no reaction there that's accepted. So right. it's easier. They will be back. There's They never left. They're still right. doing this crap. Right. And again, people remember, you know, Barack Obama back in 2016, who, because of the things you said, I, I say this not as a criticism, although there's many things to discuss about 2016 if you want to go to that path. But Obama was like, I went to Putin and told him to cut it out, mainly because like there's no world where we think that misinformation, disinformation, that that's a thing that you would go to war over, right? There's no precedent for that. Yeah. Um, and so you're constrained as a president. You end up basically trying to have a stern talking to with Vladimir Putin about don't do that. You know, we don't want don't do that, you know, and Biden threatens him for, you know, maybe there's a Stuxnet kind of equivalent that you could get into. But the reality is that you're worried about those things. You worry about misinformation because it's never going to go away. You worry about hacking, but it could happen. But there are these consequences. But the thing you're really worried about, first and foremost now, is the election subversion piece built on top of the big lie. But you have to continue thinking through the steps here and how and yes. what the roadmap looks like, because it's not just Republicans getting in there in, in these certain swing states that are going to be decided by a handful of tens of thousands of votes. But what is the reaction on the other side going to be? They're already building in the turnkey response or excuse for losing the House in 22, the Democrats, that is. It's like we, right. it was, whether it's through redistricting, gerrymandering yep. of districts, right. whether it's a change of laws, whether it's new officials in there, it's like the election was stolen from us. Right. The votes were suppressed. True or not, true or not, yes. that's going to be the narrative. And so we're into this, I called it a, you know, anti-democratic death spiral, primarily attributing that to what the, some of the what Republicans are doing out there at the state level, as well as the narratives coming out of certain members of the House. And now it looks like candidates for Senate, like Josh Mandel. Yes. You know, the yes, first statewide candidate in Ohio <laughs> that called the election yeah. stolen. That's where we're going. And it's just too politically profitable for people to push these narratives. And I, I don't see where the convergence points are. Right. You're now saying a thing that I think is interesting, 
at least worthy of a little more explanation, right? You know, you made the point previously that polarization is the wrong way of thinking about this because it's asymmetric and Republicans and conservatives and Trumpists lie and, and cheat and steal in a way that Democrats don't. But you just made this other point, which is that we are headed towards a 2022 midterm where perhaps true, like verifiably true in some ways, perhaps true less verifiably in other ways, perhaps false, who knows, but where Democrats are getting ready to make the same claim. Right. Another set of claims that are going to basically be this system is broken. This system has been subverted. This is not a democracy you can rely on. That's the death spiral, which is yeah. a death spiral where Republicans are way more responsible for this because of the big lie. But Democrats could feed into it again, justifiably or not. Play right into the game. Play right into it. Yeah. Right. And I mean, look, Georgia, right? They're right in the middle of their redistricting right now. And what Georgia went 49 and a half to Biden in 2020 in the yeah. way the districts come out is 59% right. in favor of Republicans. I'm like, that's, that's the game. Yeah. All right. So now then the obvious question, you know, now we've moved well beyond the report of the Aspen Institute. <laughs> And I ask you this question. So Democratic death spiral, that sounds bad. Like, what would you like to do about that? Uh, I mean, here's more the, hits on MSNBC for sure. Yeah, right. Because that helps. No, I mean, so the government's not going to fix this, right? In no, fact, that's no, probably no. the worst outcome where the government, again, this is ministry of truth type stuff. You don't want, but the government's got to have a plan, got to have a strategy. The, I think one of the biggest issues, though, is we have in the political elite, the elected class at the federal and state level, the only mechanism really to hold politicians accountable, elected officials accountable is at the ballot box. And the narratives are set by then. And again, this goes to that, you know, whatever percentage of Republicans believe the election was not legitimate. It's because they've been told that by elected officials and talking heads. So we have to turn out. And, you know, I, again, I am a single issue voter. If you do not reject Trump's claims, I will support your uh, opponent. Not that what I say matters, but that's how I see the world. It's very, very, very clear. And, and, you know, I guess I'm fortunate I can be that clear eyed on this stuff. You know, media has a, a, a real role here as well. And I'm not just talking about all the BS that Tucker pushes with this like January 6th thing and, you know, in the other further fringe elements, but also the centrist and more progressive media stations as well have to be responsible in how they report on things. I mean, I think we can increase, you know, incredibly over-rotated on not, not the Russia stuff necessarily in 2016 and, and on, but legitimacy of the president. I mean, he was elected, right? Same yeah, thing with Biden. Yeah. So that's yeah. all they're pointing to right now is everybody that said, not my president, not my president. They can do this. Let's go Brandon garbage and say, not my president, because that's what the left said about Trump. Yeah, right. I have one last thing that I want to play because Trump was just talking about you the other day. Was he? He did a thing. Oh, yeah. He went on with that pillow guy. Oh, God. Lindell talks about me. Yeah. And Lindell was like, do, you know, do it as usual. Like, I tr we tried to like cut a little sound of Lindell, and he's so incoherent that you can't actually make anything out of it that's not like four minutes of gibberish. But after he trashed Barr and others... He then, you know, went after you. And this is an interview between Lindell and, and Trump. And, and Trump finally, when Lindell finally shut up. Wearing his tux. Um, oh, yeah. Reminded when me Lindell of Step Brothers, the scene where they're interviewing. <laughs> like, hello, lady. <laughs> uh, when Lindell finally shut up, Trump weighed in. And, and this is what he had to say about Chris Krebs, Donald Trump. You mentioned Krebs. I never, I don't know Krebs. I don't right. even know who this oh. guy is. But I see him on television all the time on CNN and 
MSDNC, as I yeah, call yeah, it. Yeah. Uh, the, the, this guy was talking about the honesty of elections. Well, all you have to do is take a look at some of the reports that have come out yeah. since all of that. These mm -hmm. elections were incredibly dishonest. You know, he never, he didn't even know you. I mean, he fired you by tweet, but he didn't, I don't even know the guy. I don't know. I don't even know him. I don't know him. Although I do see him on CNN and MSN, MSNDC. So here's the jacket that the, the cyber community gave to me this week. Last person to hold the honor of fired by tweet by Donald Trump. This is my last question for you. I don't even mean to make light of it. I'm, I'm more afraid for the future of the country than I've ever been. I've never been a scaredy pants person about America until the last few years. And now I'm like fucking living in terror most of the time about what's coming for a lot of the same reasons you are. And I appreciate people who have boiled this down to, am I on team democracy or am I on team autocracy? Yep. Like which, what team are you on? Is Trump the problem now? Like, I mean, he's talking in that clip about being deplatformed and he misses Twitter and he misses Facebook and he misses Instagram. He's not kidding around. Yeah, fine. Start grifter, whatever you're going to start getter, better schmetter or whatever those platforms are. But he wants back on the mainstream platforms. And if he runs for president in 2024, they're going to put him back on. I'll, I'll bet you every dollar in my pocket that it will be impossible for, for those to. platforms to not put yeah. the Republican nominee for president. Yep. But is this problem now as you talk about the subversion issues, the state's issues, all that stuff, is Trump still the problem? Or is Trump now like unleashed a thing that is bigger and more powerful even than Trump? And that if he somehow got hit by a bus tomorrow, we'd still have to deal with a very, very dire situation that you've laid out today. I mean, I, I think he's a problem for the Republican leaders because there's no good outcome at this point right. for them, particularly in, in the Senate. But I think more broadly, kind of meta, not the company, but just <laughs> more. <laughs> whole other problem. Yeah, right. I, no, he's a manifestation. He is the metastasized cancer that has been kind of eating away at not just this country, but I think liberal de democracies worldwide, particularly at that, you know, where they come into contact and friction with dictators and, and autocracies. But it goes back to that power, influence, money piece. There are people that want power. There are people that have lost influence, particularly as we're becoming, you know, more of that rainbow of races and a multicultural, multiracial democracy here. There are people that don't like that. And it's not that necessarily yeah. that they're flat out racist. It's just that when you lose your access and your influence and your outlook's not as good, you make different decisions. And we're yeah. seeing a lot of these kind of minor compromises, these small compromises people are making just to stay in a position. And those things add up and they are cancers that eat away at the foundations that have, you know, 250 plus years to get us where we are. And that's the the kind of the the house of cards, I feel like that we're all sitting on right now and that it's not going to take a whole lot to, to push us over. Chris Krebs, a man who, um, if you could just take a little time and focus on getting the body politic on like whatever democratic chemo is to fight these cancers, <laughs> if you, I, I know you're trying, but we need the infusion here. This is a sick puppy we're, we're dealing with here. Well, I think you start by excising the malignant tumor. And so, yes, you start with right. Trump. And then from there, right. you get back to healing at the local level. Chris Krebs, great to see you, man. Thank you for taking the time. Thanks so much. 
Hell and High Water is a podcast from The Recount. Thanks again to Chris Krebs for being with us. If you like this episode, please subscribe to Hell and High Water and share us and rate us and review us on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I am your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Hell and High Water. Aaliyah Jackson and David Wilson engineer the podcast. Justin Chermel handles the research. Margot Gray is our assistant producer. Stephanie Stender is our post-producer. And Christian Fidel, Castro Russell is our esteemed executive producer. 